On this episode of A Pot Upon a Hill, we're going to take a deep dive into the Constitutional Convention and its impact on United States history. All right, let's do it. Here we go. audio lecture we discussed about the American Revolution and how much it took to get people inspired to break away from England. Now that it's over, uh, the new question is, well, how is it that the people, the American people, are going to be governed? And so we're going to talk about the uh, strengths and limitations of the Articles of Confederation and how it leads to the Constitutional Convention. The Articles of Confederation, of course, are our first constitution, but we are not currently under them, right? Our current constitution was created in 1787 and there was a motivation for that. It was because what was in place was not working. All right, so when we look at the problems, foreign problems are of course uh, among the first things they notice. All right? the, the many of the states violated the Treaty of Paris, many of them had not uh, paid, repaid their debt, and uh, we had not restored the property to different loyalists. And at the same time, the function of the federal government was too weak. We couldn't prevent military outposts by the British to to attack us on the western frontier. And this led to uh, weaknesses in economics as well as some interstate quarrels. Yeah, the inability for the United States uh, federal government under the Articles of Confederation to pose or levy taxes and the inability of printing like a unified central currency really led to economic depression or inflation. For example, New York currency is going to be valued or printed differently than, say, Georgia currency. There's not going to be a lot of international trade, if there, uh, interstate trade. If there is, who is going to be the arbitrator? What, what court system is in place to kind of be the referee between two yeah. merchants that are fighting or vying for uh, this dispute? I so, mean, living here in the tri-state area, it seems very foreign to us that if you were to go over to Jersey or Connecticut, you'd be using a different currency and have to exchange your money. But that was the case here. Right. And that's why it was so uh, difficult for the economy to get going. It limited the free trade throughout the United States. Right. The states did not cooperate or work collectively. And as such, these tariffs and restrictions um, with each other is going to significantly impact the economy. So what happens is the, the founding fathers or the, the, the leaders of each state kind of form a convention known as the Annapolis Convention. Um, and they kind of, at this meeting at Annapolis, Maryland, decide to meet in Philadelphia to revise the artic Articles of Confederation and, and kind of be able to discuss some of the problems that they're all identifying at this time. And, and that brings us to where we know now as an Independence Hall. And the drafting of the Constitution in Philadelphia, there were 55 delegates total. Of course, all of them were white, <laughs> all of them were male, and most of them were college-educated. And when you look at the... Um, the group there that congregated, the they are much wealthier than your average American at this time. So the key issues that they're trying to deal with is, uh, and that come up in having to create conflict there, are representation, 
slavery and how are we going to regulate trade. And so the, first we're going to touch on representation. And the reason why we're talking about the demographics of these delegates is keep in mind, and it, it's not a bad thing necessarily, but if there's a homogeneity among this group, they're all going to have similar interests. Yes. There's a sameness, there's going to be sameness in what they want. In what they want, and their motivations for constructing this are going to be sim similar. But keep in mind, the revolution was fought by a variety of different social classes, a variety of different ethnicities, a variety of different um, of, of religions, races religions. and religions. Yeah. So the idea is that you would want to create this uh, mosaic of diversity at the forefront, but we're not seeing that here. Yeah, so the first compromise is known as the Great Compromise. And what it was is a, a mixture between two the uh, plans that were proposed. You have the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan. The Virginia plan was focused on this idea that our House of Representatives or our, our Congress should be based strictly on proportional representation. Based on the population of each state, that is how they will be given their representatives. The New Jersey, a smaller state compared to Virginia in terms of population at that time, they viewed it as, no, that would be unfair. We should all have equal representation. Everyone should get the same amount of delegates or congresspeople. That is what would be the true determining factor in the will of the people. What's interesting is you would think that these founding fathers that just fought a revolution would want to create a strong centralized government and usually put someone in charge, like in our concept of a president. But keep in mind, a lot of these people were state legislatures. Mm -hmm. They wanted to put the majority of power in the legislative wing of government. There was no talk of a president that at this time. There was no talk of a king or a strong concept of a figurehead that we now know today. So they want to put all of their um, power and their, their thoughts into legislature. That's why representation was such a powerful and important argument to be had because whatever state had the most representation would have, have the, the most power. power. Exactly. And one of the things we'll talk about later when we get into the language, but the first three words were we the people for a reason. Right. Right? That's where they wanted the power to rest. Right. And representation is where that's from. Right. Um, but, but that also being said, they want to realize they realize with the failures of the Articles of Confederation that they need to strengthen the federal government to a certain right. extent. So um, they come up with the Great Compromise, which is a blending of both, and that's the current system we have. We have the House of Representation, which is proportional, and we have equal representation in the Senate. Those together comprise our, our uh, Congress. Okay, And, and that, um, some people still dispute whether that is the appropriate way to go forward, but this is the plan that they came up with to balance the two ideas. Now, everyone seemed to agree on the Great Compromise, but then the next question kind of rose among the issue of slavery. A lot of Southern delegates at this convention said, well, if we're going to do uh, an entire house based on proportional uh, proportionality of, of, of the population of our states, then why don't we count yeah. our slaves? Because if you really count all the slaves in Georgia or South Carolina or North Carolina, for instance, you're going to have a large percentage of the population increase, therefore increasing their respective representation. Exactly. How you count the people became the next question. What's ironic is that the the people that have owned these, pe uh, these people and considered them property are now really arguing to count them as part of the census and the population yes. in order to gain representation. It's the highest of ironies because they don't want them to be treated as humans at any point other than when it gives them more power. And, th and that's the... Uh, the, the Northern point. delegates argued, well, if you're considering them property, they can't be people, therefore they cannot be counted as this in the census, therefore you do not have to count exactly. the population. So you have this interesting argument around slavery, and what comes out of this argument is one of the uh, most sinister, nefarious agreements that I have ever seen in a United States recorded history, and it's called the Three-Fifths Compromise. Yeah, so every five slaves that are in... 
uh, state will be counted as three. There'll be three-fifths of a person. So this lo uh, logistically, in terms of the um, House of Representatives, gives a uh, incredible edge and power in terms of representation for these southern states. That's why they wanted it. They wanted a full-fledged, right. uh, every single slave counts towards our population, therefore our representation, therefore our power, and the south, the north was disagreeing, but they end up winning the argument by getting a little bit closer to theirs with the three-fifths. So, so that's something that significantly shifts the balance of power in our Congress early in our history to the uh, the southern states. But in a way, the fact that they made this compromise shows a big paradox that they allowed to happen all the way to 1861. Mm -hmm. And here's the paradox. At the same exact time, slaves will be considered property and human beings. And like Lincoln, so many years later, a house divided cannot stand. We're going to have to face this issue much later in the 19th century. Yeah, so that debate ends up revolving around this idea of we can't settle this slavery debate right now. The northern states and the southern states basically kick the can down the road and make this decision later on. And they basically say, for 20 more years, we'll import slaves and we'll reconsider it after that. The idea is that a lot of the founding fathers made this compromise thinking that slavery as an institution would eventually die out. Yeah, it would die out on its own. And by cutting out the importation of slaves from the Atlantic African slave route, Southerners will just have to find alternative me means of labor sources. We will discuss how the, the institution of slavery not only did not die during this time, but actually exponentially grew with their the new introduction of a cash crop known as cotton. Yeah, and and just the term of in terms of our uh, economy, you know, scarcity. When a product becomes more scarce, it's going to be more valuable, right. and that's what made these people so wealthy in the South. So when we look at trade, that's the third component that was being debated at this constitutional convention, is um, the North is wanting a federal government that's going to regulate trade and help it so that you don't have the issues we had prior where you have Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, all with different rules, regulations. So the South is very fearful of federal overreach, federal control, because they are concerned about their exports. Their Farming, agrarian society is all about exporting tobacco, right. exporting rice at this point, not yet cotton, as you mentioned. So what they come up with is known as the commercial compromise, where Congress agrees to regulate interstate and foreign commerce only. Any, any um, commerce going on within a state is their own business. So there will be tariffs, which is taxes on imports, and there will not be taxes on exports. So the South is pleased with that decision because they are concerned about competing on the global market with their export of their property. So after um, the Founding Fathers debated on the roles and responsibilities of the legislature in both the Senate and the House of Representatives, a good question is, well, who can qualify mm -hmm. to become them? And it's very simple. You had to be a resident of the state that you're representing, obviously, and you also had to hold property. And here's the big issue with that. You had to have a certain amount of property to have a stake or an interest in that remaining area. And that sounds like a good and logical idea, but you have to understand that keeps a significant amount of the, po the population away from office holding, away from a say or a conversation in the policymaking. This is not a direct democracy. This is a republic framed under the precepts of the Roman civilization. There's a certain level of detachment mm -hmm. from the people and the representatives that are being formulated, and this was intentional. They were concerned that any random person could become right. an office holder, right. and it could be a demagogue that goes takes the country right. off the rails. Right. 
coincidentally. But um, one of the things that the idea of stakeholding is that you have more of an investment in right. the outcome right. of the country. Therefore, you'd be more likely to be very good caretaker of it when it's in your uh, power to change it. Um, this also extended to voting for most of the t t uh, early parts of our country where you're only able to vote if you own property, therefore limiting many uh, thousands of people who do not own property yet, but yet live and reside in our country. Um, so as we move forward, we want to also look at how whether or not there is a presidency. The executive branch, right. the idea of three co-equal branches is something that is born here, not right. part of the Articles of Confederation. Um, so the issues they're deciding on once they decide that there will be a presidency is how long should they right. rule? Should it be for life? 12 years somebody threw out as an idea? And they end up settling on a four-year term. And often now we extend that sentence and say with two-term limit. But that is something that is not added until after World War II. And we have to understand that they did not think term limits were necessary. If the voice of the people determined that you would get reelected, that's what should be. Well, also, how are these presidents going to be elected? Remember, a lot of these founding fathers, they're students of history. They've read Cicero. They've read Plutarch. They read all these historians that actually uh, uh, recorded the trajectory and the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And the biggest uh, leader that they were really scared of is Caesar. And much like Caesar or King George III in the Revolutionary War, they were afraid of the masses loving the, the, the president or the president promising something that they cannot keep. So they kind of created some sort of apparatus or system to kind of mitigate mob rule or mob mentality. And they did this through the, the uh, creation known as the Electoral College. Yeah, Shays Rebellion was really um, the best example right. of mob rule gone haywire right. from the perspective of the property owners, from right. the perspective of the elite in our right. country at this time. They're concerned about a angry mob of farmers or lower class rolling and controlling this simply by power of numbers. Right. So there's a detachment that's created with this electoral college. So every time we have a presidential election, you, I describe it as currently we have 50 states, so it's 50 separate elections right. that each candidate is uh, competing in. Once you win one state, you win all of their electors. Now, the the determining factor for who the elect who the electors can vote for and who they cannot, it's the electoral college is meant to be a a step in between right. a direct democracy it, to pretend, protect or prevent something wrong from happening. So think of it this way. When the people vote, or people that are qualified to vote, vote popularly, they, they tally up all the votes, and the majority activates, you can think of it that way, activates a certain group of other people known as electors to then vote for the president. Mm -hmm. So really what the popular vote is in this country is to activate a certain group of electors that then go on to vote for the president. So it is, again, this indirect way of voting for uh, the, the, the president in office really shows what the founding fathers were thinking in terms of power distribution. They did not want the power to be rested in the presidency, especially right after the ashes of the Revolutionary War. And they did not want the power to be rested in too many of the people. Right, right. <laughs> now, um, the only other thing I'll add when it comes to the Electoral College is that these are not members of an elected office. They are uh, citizens. Anyone can qualify to be a member of the Electoral College. You or I could qualify to be a member of the Electoral College if we wanted to be. You all, all you have to do is apply. Now, um, as far as the powers of the presidency, they end up giving them considerable power because we'll talk about later, there is within the system of checks and balances. So one of the most important things that the president can do is veto an act of Congress and reject it and send it back to Congress in order for them to have the opportunity, if there is a consensus of two-thirds majority or more, 
to overturn his or override his veto. So the, the next debate becomes the ratification of this constitution. And they decide, how should we go about this? They debate for 17 weeks in Philadelphia, and then they finally submit it to the states for ratification. And they were anticipating opposition, so they did not want a um, unanimous decision to be the one, uh, because they felt like that might be too difficult to achieve. So they required only nine of the 13 current states uh, to ratify. That's where we, we move on. Now, some of you are wondering, well, what, what about the third branch of the federal government, the judicial branch? Well, that should just tell you something about um, how much thought that they put into it. A lot of the founding fathers put more emphasis, again, on the legislature and the executive. And for the judicial branch, initially, they just wanted it to be the federal court system mm -hmm. that would only deal with interstate uh, quarrels and disputes. We will talk about how the judicial branch gained power to check both branches later on in this lecture. Correct. So um, there's an organic development within our system. You know, looking at politics nowadays, it would be baffling to think that political parties were not always part of our system, but that was the case. They were not part of the design, um, but they really just were created based on the two camps that people kind of separated into at when the ratification process was going on. Right, and these two camps or factions or groups of people that started to form on the basis of whether to ratify the Constitution or not, are known as the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Very creative naming. Right. Yeah, the yeah. Federalists are a group of people that support the ratification of the Constitution. Anti-Federalists, as the name implies, are people that are have a little misgiving, have some misgivings on yeah. the ratification. Reservations. Yeah. Reservations on the ratification of the Constitution. So in order to kind of like convince every state or legislature to vote for this, both camps are doing an active marketing campaign to convince um, these people to ratify or not. And the Federalists are going to write a series of essays, persuasive essays, known as the Federalist Papers. And they're going to have a lot of key elements of the debate. There's going to be 85 of them in, um, in total, and they're going to defend and argue for the Constitution directly to the public. The chief author of the Federalist Papers is going to be a founding father known as Alexander Hamilton. He will be writing 51 of them, followed by the architect of the Constitution named James Madison, who will write 29, and of course John Jay will write five of them. They will write all of these within six months because time is of the essence. They understand that the public wants some, some sort of product, they want what product that works, and they're very, very, very energetic and very enthusiastic to get this message across. So it's sent to the uh, states in the late spring, early summer of 1787, and as you said, six months cases when this is happening. The final outcome, as we know, it was ratified, that's why we're here today right. talking about it. And um, the first three states, I always was confused, Delaware claimed to be the first state on their license right. plates growing up, I was like, that doesn't make sense. But um, the they were the first to ratify, that's why Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania were the first three, and then eventually, in 1788, New Hampshire is the ninth, and then it is official that the Constitution has been adopted. Now, the Anti-Federalists weren't just sitting there quietly, as Alexander Hamilton and Madison and John Jay were furiously writing his persuasive essays. The Anti-Federalists, too, were going on a market campaign. Um, and they were doing it so much so that the, the, the Constitution wouldn't have been ratified unless there was another compromise that was passed. And the Federalists, um, in order to gain ratification, promised the other faction that they would add an additional document known as the Bill of Rights 
to the Constitution. And this is really one of the major objections of the Anti-Federalists, that there was nothing that explicitly gave civil or individual rights and liberties to the masses, to the public. So it was just an assurance for the Anti-Federalists to kind of get on board, or at least not obstruct the ratification process too much. Yeah, and one of the more uh, powerful and most populated states, Virginia, was one of the last to ratify. And in 1788, they finally did, largely because of the strong Anti-Federalist support that they had. Um, and they were ratified by a narrow margin only with that promise as, that you mentioned already. So um, the final states that come on, we ratify it, and the um, North Carolina, Rhode Island are the last two, and it's known as the supreme law of the land as we go forward. So the adding of the Bill of Rights became a two different argument issue. So those that fought the war, the revolution, it was about escaping tyranny. So the concern from the anti-federalists, the, the, the reason why we need it is because a strong central government that we've created, what's to prevent something from right. having our government do the same things that the British had done to us? So only a Bill of Rights could protect us against this such possibility. Um, arguments against the Bill of Rights or uh, from the Federalist group, they're, they're thinking that it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. They're saying, listen, the people elected the Congress. They, re they elected the representatives to make the decisions for them. Why would they need protection from themselves? So yeah. for the Federalist's point of view, it's just an extra, it's, it's just redundant at this point. Yeah. Um, if it comes from the people, the representatives come from the people, there's no need for this. The second thing is, why would you limit your rights to a list? where it could be kind of argued in courts and you can hold people accountable. So for the Federalists, they're kind of like the people that like to play dodgeball with very like loosey-goosey rules, mm -hmm. where there's a certain amount of flexibility to play the game. The Anti-Federalists are the, the, the rule mongers. They're the ones who want specific rules to follow so that in the event of cheating, they can call it out and have some sort of justice. So it's not one is better or worse than the other, it's just a different position that both camps had and it kind of is what fueled these debates. Yeah, and so as we go into the first 10 amendments to our Constitution known as the Bill of Rights, it's important to understand um, really the philosophy of these two different documents. The um, Constitution is all of the th explicit things that the government can do and the Bill of Rights is all the things that the government cannot do. So the rights of expression are categorized by the First Amendment, your freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the right to peacefully assemble, and the, to petition the government. So we want to look at these individually as well. So the religion, uh, the freedom of religion has two specific clauses that are part of it. Um, the freedom of exercise clause, which is free for anyone to do whatever they want, and the establishment clause, that the government will not establish any one religion as our official government religion, therefore preventing any other religion from be de uh, being deemed second tier. That's important because of how we um, treat one another and how our government decides to implement state-run institutions. They need to be equal or neutral to all religions in order to maintain a true freedom. And a lot of people take this for granted as an obvious like uh, way to go. But keep in mind, in the previous lectures, we discussed how Massachusetts Bay Colony was essentially a theocracy. They had Congregationalists. You also know that the Anglicans were the state-sponsored Church of England. So they're reacting to this idea that the state must sponsor one particular form of sect over another. And the Founding Fathers totally sidestepped 
this quagmire, or this potential quagmire, by saying we will remain politically neutral of all religion. The second right of expression is freedom of speech. Um, now, although uh, anyone can freely say whatever they want to say, what constitutes the criteria of what constitutes free speech will vary throughout time and uh, vary by each judge within the Supreme Court. So we'll talk more about how uh, that happens later on. Yeah. So as we progress, uh, things can change, and, th and that's one of the things we'll ev evaluate. So um, the freedom of the press is third, and that's critical because of the important value that provides. We saw with the Zenger trial early on in the previous podcast about how important that was to the right. um, establishment of this idea that if somebody says something that is true and publishes it, that doesn't mean that it is illegal, that the truth is something that uh, the American citizens really held valuable. So the freedom of the press was crucial, and the freedom to exercise that is important to what becomes known as the fourth estate. We have the three branches of government, right. and this separate entity helps uh, the American public stay informed and therefore be able to check the uh, American um, representatives and our representatives. Um, but one of the limitations on that is known as um, libel. And what libel is, is simply, if I am a, a journalist and I want to do someone harm, I write a story about them that I know at the time of me writing it, I know to be false. That is libel. Our laws are very uh, relaxed on that because in Europe, it's much more strict. Especially but here in, in Yeah, especially in England. Here in America, that you, they have to prove that you knew at the time of writing that story that to be false. So um, that is something that gives the... Uh, with the precedent from the Zenger trial, it gives our press a lot of leniency in what they can accomplish. The uh, next right of expression is the ability to peacefully assemble. And of course, there's rules and limitations on when you can assemble, how you can assemble, and of course, getting the proper permits to do so. But that will come later on as we discuss this throughout the year. And one of the things I think it's often overlooked is the, the final right of expression is the right to petition the government. And I argue sometimes that none of these others matter unless you have the right to say, hey, I've been wronged here. This happened to me. And you need to, you have the ability to go to the court and the American government can be on trial. That is something that is unique around the world, is that sometimes we take that for granted. And um, if I have been wronged, I can go to the courts and sue the, a government institution or someone that works for the government or the government itself that they have done me wrong, and if you look at this Bill of Rights, I have the right of religion, I have the right of free religion, freedom of speech, they have taken that away from me, and I petitioned the court to help me. So you can go against your own government, and that is something that is the evidence of freedom within our society. The Second Amendment is uh, also seemingly a very simplistic one, but in, in recent years have become increasingly more complex. It's called the Second Amendment, and in it, it uh, establishes the right to bear arms. The exact words of the Second Amendment are this, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Right, so it's a matter of whether or not you want to emphasize state militia having the right to bear arms or the people, individuals, to bear arms. And this is something that it, we're still kind of debating in today's society. And we've seen this interpretation uh, evolve throughout history. So, as we move on to the Third Amendment that is not um, incredibly well-known, because it's not incredibly, right. um, I guess... Important to our context today. Yeah. I mean, no quartering of troops simply is direct uh, reaction to the Stamp Act right. that the British had imposed on the people of 
uh, Britain. The Boston Port Act, uh, putting uh, the Boston under quarantine and exactly. under martial so law. It's much more of a 1787 worldview than it is <laughs> modern day. But no quartering of troops simply says that the government will never force you to harbor um, our troops in your home. And that brings us to the Fourth Amendment, which is incredibly important. It is the protection against unreasonable search and seizures. The important phrase here is that the government or the police often need to establish that they have probable cause that you are doing something wrong or they have evidence to prove that you might have illegal um, substances in your home, in your car, or on your person. And what we have established later on is the court system is what the police have to go to to access a warrant in order to search you. That the government or agencies of the government like the police cannot just come into your home unannounced and throw things around and take things. That is a violation of your privacy. And the Fifth Amendment is kind of an extension of the Fourth Amendment. So assuming that someone is accused of a crime and the government has a warrant, um, the person that is accused has the right to a grand jury uh, by their peers. So people within their society, they have the right to kind of witness and discuss the, the, the offenses that they may or may not have committed. They are also entitled to a speedy trial, which is a quick process, as, and, as, and also the concept known as due process. Yeah, but one of the important things about the grand jury is it's specific for capital offenses. So no one would like to be have the headline be you're right. accused of murder if there's not enough evidence to right. prove it. So the, the reason why we go to grand juries is to not ruin people's reputations pre-trial. Um, due process is critical. It's basically the idea that everyone gets the same shake, whether or not uh, you're wealthy, a landowner, or a, uh, just a commoner, you should get the same system in the way the system treats you. Double jeopardy is unique in the sense that you are only going to get charged for a crime once. The government has one shot right. to prosecute you. If they don't get a jury to convict you, they can't try again. Right. That would be abuse of the state over and over again trying to do that. And most famously, the Fifth Amendment is known when someone pleads the Fifth, which is the protection from self-incrimination. The government is forced to prove that you did something with evidence. They can't put you on the, on the stand and Pressure just you ask you something. to answer. Because during this time, a lot of people, especially in England, uh, would sign forced, co coerced into writing these signed confessions. Yes. And and then and, and, uh, Fifth Amendment kind of protects you from that. The burden of proof is on the prosecution. Right. They can't just tell, say, what did you do that right. night? Right, right. Okay. And that brings us to the Sixth Amendment. Sixth Amendment is an extension, of course, uh, to the Fifth. And, of course, the Fourth Amendment is the right to a speedy and public trial. Uh, an impartial jury, so the type of people that are going to kind of witness uh, your possible offenses um, have to kind of be impartial or neutral, and you are of course entitled to a representative uh, or a lawyer. And one of the interesting things is, uh, if those of you that watch Law and Order and know that you are entitled to uh, a lawyer, and if you cannot afford one, one will be provided right. for you, Public that opinion. comes later on, because right. what they did was they applied the due process clause from the Fifth Amendment to the Sixth and realized people that did not have the funds to pay for a lawyer, right. they are not going to be able to have a, f a, a proper defense or a capable defense, and that's what they are given with a addition of a lawyer. The Seventh Amendment kind of expands upon that and says uh, the right of the accused will have a trial by jury in civil cases, which is which is distinct from criminal cases. In civil cases, the accused um, is, is between two people, right? The, the, the court is between two individuals, a lawsuit perhaps. 
in criminal cases, it's the state versus someone who has committed a crime um, under the precepts of, of the state. Yeah, and the Eighth Amendment is the last of the what's known as the rights of the accused. And one of the things that we establish is that there will be no cruel and unusual punishment, and there will be no excessive bail or fines to try and penalize people um, in order to profit from them. We didn't want our system to be profiting off of uh, accused people. The Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment kind of go along together because it kind of answers the uh, question of the Federalists uh, when they were posing it um, in the Bill of Rights in the first place. And mm -hmm. the Ninth Amendment really protects and provides people that have rights that go beyond what is stated in the Constitution. So anything that is not explicitly mentioned here does not necessarily mean that those rights are restricted. So it allows a little wiggle room for people to have more rights in the future. Exactly. And the Tenth Amendment basically summarizes that by saying, and anything else we haven't thought of, that is left to the states. So the federal government has um, these powers explicitly for them, and anything that has not been given to them, that will be given to the states, and the state governments and or the people. So these are the 10 uh, amendments to the Bill of Rights, but over, uh, over time, we have a total of 27. So how did we get from 10 to 17 extra? Well, the Founding Fathers implemented within the Constitution an amendment process. There's an element of humility, really, when the uh, framers realize we're not able to think of everything, single thing that's going to take place in the future. So we're going to give the opportunity for the people themselves to add to their own constitution and technically improve it. So uh, that process that you mentioned, it basically can start one of two ways. Right. The first way is where the United States Congress gets two-thirds of all of the members to vote on behalf of something. And then it goes back to the state, similar to kind of the original constitution right. where that was approved. And at that place, they, they need two-thirds of all the states. It's currently 38 out of 50 right. um, in order to ratify a new amendment. And that's, just, no, I'm sorry. That's how m almost all of our new amendments have been ratified. Right, and just like how it's top-down, uh, the other way to do it is bottom-up. So instead of having two-thirds of both congressmen in Senate and House uh, vote upon it, you have to get two-thirds of every state legislature's um, to pass this uh, amendment, whatever proposal it is, and then kick it up to Congress for ratification. So you can have it both ways, and um, like Mr. Copeland said, uh, all of the amendments have been passed from the federal government down, and we'll discuss why that is or how that is in later lectures. All right, so that concludes this podcast. We're going to jump in next with the first two major administrations of our uh, current Constitution uh, when we come back. Take care.